0: My guest today is Alan Meltzer, the Alan H. Meltzer University Professor of Political Economy at Carnegie Mellon University, an authority on monetary policy and the history of the Federal Reserve. Alan, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Nice to be with you.
0: Alan, when I was an undergrad and a grad student, uh, which was in the seventies, I was taught that the Fed Federal Reserve in the United States controls the money supply via open market operations, the buying and selling of treasury bonds. But for many years, recently, all we hear about is the Fed controlling interest rates. First, explain what the Fed is doing or claiming to do when they talk about interest rate cuts, which they've been doing recently, and what does that mean exactly?
1: The Fed controls a single interest rate, not all interest rates, but one interest rate, a particular rate, the rate at which banks sell reserves to each other and to some of their customers, they control that rate, and that rate sets or helps to influence other rates in the market and also to determine how fast banks expand or contract. So the Fed's job, as it sees it, is to set that interest rate so as to maintain uh, reasonable levels of uh, of employment and prices
0: but w- when they literally cut that rate is that a posted rate or did they have to use open market operations to affect it
1: in principle they could announce that rate and let the banks make sure that it was that it prevailed but in practice they engage in open market operations almost on a daily basis or often on a daily basis to make the rate
0: binding. Now, when they say we've decided to cut the rate, uh, you could interpret it to say that they have decided to engage in open market operations, the textbook story that I was told uh, as, a, as a student uh, 30 years ago. Uh, when I interviewed Milton Friedman about this, His claim, and I'd like your comment on it, his claim was, well, they claim that they are manipulating the interest rate, the federal funds rate, but what they're really doing is is acting to control the money supply.
1: I don't think they think of what they're doing that way. Uh, Milton is, of course, right that what they do will affect what the money supply is, but I don't believe that for many years... They've actually thought that they were controlling the money supply. They think of themselves as controlling the interest rate, and they take daily operations to uh, maintain the interest rate. Now, at times in the past, particularly in the 70s when you were a student, they set for themselves a level of reserve growth or money growth that they said they wanted to maintain, but they never did it. The reason they they didn't do it was because they wouldn't allow the interest rate to change enough to uh, to make the money supply meet their target.
0: But what's schizophrenic about this or peculiar or, or confusing, and I hope you can straighten this out for, for me and also for our listeners, is the following. Again, I was taught that monetary policy is potent and important and that the money supply is a key determinant, if not the only determinant, of the price level and inflation. And yet, the man on the street... Has come to believe that interest rates are what move the economy around. I understand they're related, but it's a, it's a totally different causal chain than I think is both. I think it's not necessarily the correct causal chain, and it's confusing because it's not the same one we were taught. the The, the causal chain that the man on the street thinks of is that if the economy's going too fast, if if it's growing too quickly, the Fed raises interest rates. To, to drag it back, and if the economy is growing slowly as it is now or at, at risk of recession, the Fed needs to cut interest rates because that stimulates the economy. Is there any truth to that theory, first of all, either as a behavioral theory of what the Fed's trying to do or as an economic theory?
1: It certainly is the way the Fed thinks about it, and as a result, that's the way people in the marketplace Think about it because they, if the Fed said we're going to uh, manage the real, exchange, real interest rate, even though they can't, <laughs> the market would concentrate on that. They do what the Fed tells them to think that the Fed thinks it's doing. Um, uh, the theory that all the textbooks have, the one you're talking about, and that, that, that you change the interest rate and that affects aggregate spending. Economy in that way, and ultimately prices. <clears throat> A much better way to think about the problem, which has been lost, it's the classical way of thinking about it, is that the Fed puts out money. It changes the amount of real money balances, that is, money balances adjusted for prices. It changes the amount of money balances. If people have more money balances than they want to hold, they spend them either on goods or on assets. If they have fewer money balances than they want to hold, they stop spending and try to accumulate more money balances, and that affects the economy. I believe that's a better way of thinking about what the Fed actually does, but it's not the way that they think about
0: it, and it's not the way journalists write about it. Certainly not. But but Ben Bernanke is a smart man.
1: Yes, he is,
0: and he knows and both. A well-trained economist. He is. He knows both of those stories. Uh, he knows. I think that the one that is talked about. The common standard idea that interest rates, again, as you pointed out very carefully when I asked you the first question, you really can't talk about interest rates, plural. The Fed really is only controlling this one little thing, this rate at which banks lend to each other to maintain legal requirements uh, of holdings at the Fed. So this one little interest rate somehow now becomes interest rates writ large and that this argument that the Fed is manipulating interest rates to choke off economic acti- activity or or expand it seems absurd. Ben Bernanke surely knows it's absurd. He surely knows the theory you just explained and that I was taught and that I'm sure you teach your students is the right way to think about it, and yet he does not do that. He does Well, not there talk are two reasons. It. Why?
1: Uh, first, of course, it is the consensus in all the textbooks. Second... As I've been told many times by senators and congressmen, you talk to me about the money supply and the growth of the money supply, but my constituents write to me about interest rates. They're concerned about interest rates, and historically, I think that's true. And so that's a reason why the Fed... The Fed, we talk about an independent Federal Reserve, but in reading and writing the history of the Federal Reserve, there are very few occasions since the 1930s, when the Fed actually practiced independence. There was the Volcker era. He was certainly an independent central bank governor. But Bernanke is anything but an independent central bank governor. He is being leaned on by the Congress, and he accedes to them. So even though he may worry about inflation, and there are certainly members of his committee who worry about inflation, he's expanding Economy, or trying to expand the economy. He's trying to respond to the short-term pressures. Instead of thinking ahead and thinking longer-term, how do we get a balanced growth path with low inflation and low unemployment?
0: And I'm...
1: That brings him to the interest rate, because that's the thing that people in the market see. The Wall Street people, of course, they're under great pressure. They they're, they're put him under great pressure because they own a lot of bonds and mortgages, And they believe that if he lowers the federal funds rate, it will lower the price of their mortgages and bonds, and they'll have smaller losses. And so they are on his back all the time to do more, to cut the interest rate that he controls, so that hoping that the rates that they see and own will go down and their profits or losses will become smaller.
0: So just to clarify, we'll, I hope come back and talk more about the political role of the Fed in a little bit. But the Fed on paper is independent. But, of course, all uh, anyone who lives in the Washington area and talks to the press and talks to the Congress is a political animal and has incentives to, to respond to that. Correct?
1: Yes. And the Fed, I mean, in reading the uh, minutes of the Fed and watching what they do, the Fed has always been – very much afraid of Congress, and it takes someone took someone with the stamina and and uh, arrogance in a way of Volker to be able to get around that. But he had the help of the fact from the fact that the public had decided that inflation was the number one economic problem.
0: That's correct. And they yeah.
1: wanted something done about it. So he had the support of the chairman of the principal banking committees, but only for a while. By the summer of 1982, they were facing an election, and they were on his back to ease up.
0: And he did not, correct?
1: Well, a little bit. He <laughs> wouldn't admit that he was doing it, but he did.
0: Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So they're all political animals.
1: You have to be. Yeah. I mean, the idea of having a really independent agency in Washington—that's just
0: not going to happen. Well, I mentioned it before on this show that even the Supreme Court, which people think of as you know, totally independent, of course, responds to political pressure for all kinds of reasons.
1: And they are not; they're not on a mandate. They're a co-equal branch of government. Correct. And the Federal Reserve is has its powers derives its powers from the Congress. That is, the Congress has the power to control money and re, to to provide money and regulate the value thereof in the Constitution. And the Fed's power is delegated. And they're very much aware that Congress could always change that. Now, it wouldn't be easy for the Congress to change it because the Fed, the Fed has cultivated a lot of domestic political support in the banking committees and in the banking community and in the public. So it manages to hang on to some me- measure or vestige of independence. But it's very much concerned always about what the Congress is doing and doesn't want to deviate very far from that.
0: And, of course, there are other incentives. Ben Bernanke does not want to be perceived – no chair no of the Fed wants to be perceived as causing a recession, whether it is the fault of the Fed or not. But if a recession occurs on the watch of a Fed chair, it, it's going to be put at that chair's feet at some dimension. And my worry and, – and tell me if I'm wrong here – my worry is Bernanke right now is worried about a recession – a lot of people, I think foolishly, but a lot of people think, quote, we're already in one uh, without much evidence for it. There's some suggestions certainly of a slowdown. But to make sure that a recession doesn't occur, he has been cutting these, the interest rate we've been discussing, which is an expansionary monetary policy. What I, what I want to make sure I'm right about, and so correct me if I'm wrong, if he continues to do that, if he continues to cut interest rates and expand the money supply – he will cause in the idea with the idea of making sure that the economy keeps growing. He runs the risk of of a steep increase in the rate of inflation, which will surely increase nominal interest rates that he does not control that do affect economic activity. Because as inflation rises, uh, lenders want a premium for the money that they're going to be receiving back that will not be as be as uh, valuable uh, as when they lend it. Uh, is, that a, is that a correct story?
1: Yes, but I would add one important thing. It depends on his ability and the Fed's ability and his staff's ability to forecast what's going to happen. And having looked at that data over the better part of a century, it's just not true that economists Economists are probably the best forecasters of economic activity there are, but they're not very good. There's just <laughs> too many random things that happen. Sure. We don't have very good ways of forecasting what's going to happen. So the pressures that come from Congress and the pressures that come from the from Wall Street and probably from the administration at this time are pushing him to, to pay attention to these very short-term movements. And uh, you, you just see the clamor coming from Congress and from Wall Street where people talk, use the word depression to describe what we're in. We're not anywhere near a depression. We may be in a recession. But so far, the data doesn't support that. We will probably possibly have a recession, but the data so far does not say that the economy is in trouble. The housing sector is certainly in trouble. Right. The automobile market has been in trouble for reasons that have very little to do with monetary policy in the case of automobiles. Right. The rest of the economy is holding up moderately well as, uh, as the latest... Data show that despite the decline in housing, which is a big industry, despite the decline in the automobile industry, the economy is holding up very well. What the Fed can do is focus over the longer term. It doesn't want to do that. It's being pressed not to do that. And so it spends much too much time focusing on what's going to happen next quarter. You read the Federal Reserve transcripts. I've read all of them since 1913. If you read them, You see that the discussion at those meetings for the last 25, 50 years is almost always about what's going to happen now, whether we should cut the rate by an eighth of a point or a quarter of a point or even, heaven forbid, by half a point or raise it by similar amounts. That's what the discussion is all about. They don't talk about what are the long-term consequences. Hardly ever talk about what are the long-term consequences of what we're doing now. Now, recently there's been some improvement because during this recent period we've had dissents. And while two people have publicly dissented from the committee's decision because they're voting members, it's a fact that at least four or five members of the committee do not like the current policy. And one sign of that is that when they made the most recent cut in interest rates, only four banks out of 12 asked for a reduction in the discount rate. Hmm. That meant that the directors and the managements of those banks are not happy with the inflationary policy that we have now.
0: Okay. Well, I, and I want to mention that that you are the author of a two-volume history of the Federal Reserve. It's called The History of the Federal Reserve. First volume is out with University of Chicago Press, and the second volume you mentioned um, before we started will ideally be out uh, by the end of this year. Thank you. So you've 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 done the – I won't call it a labor of love. I I think it's more of a um, Herculean effort of the Aegean stables maybe of reading through those transcripts of all of the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee minutes, right? That's what we're talking about. That's right. So here's my puzzle then. You've suggested that the Fed has been a political animal for its entire uh, creation since 1913 it is inevitably as you point out a political uh, response to political forces has some degree of independence and yet i would suggest that and I, many others would agree and i think you will too that the fed's performance in the last 30 years maybe longer is much superior to its performance in its early days that is the volatility of prices and inflation the volatility of the money supply the underlying thing that you and I think really is what is going on here, has been much better. And as a result, macroeconomic performance in the United States and around the world, as other Feds have done similarly well, has improved. Why? What's different today and in recent decades than than in the past before that?
1: From 1985 to about 2001, maybe a little bit longer, the Fed followed a much more intermediate-term strategy, Volcker- For example, concentrated, he changed. The big change that Volcker made when he came to the Fed in 1979 was he stopped attention to the short run movements of unemployment and concentrated on reducing the inflation rate. He could have done it perhaps more efficiently than he did, but he did it. And he deserves, in my mind, great credit for having persevered through two years in following that policy. And he then, having gotten inflation down to 3 or 4%, he then maintained a longer-term path. He looked ahead, and Greenspan, who followed him, certainly did that. They looked ahead at what the Fed and what their policy would do over a longer term. So they weren't as concerned with the short-term ups and downs in the economy. They didn't ignore them, but they also didn't emphasize them as much. Consequently, we had this period which economists now call the Great Moderation. They're back now to being concerned about the day-to-day or quarter-to-quarter movements in unemployment and the possibility of a recession. And they're putting great weight on, the, on avoiding the possibility of recession and thinking to themselves, well, we'll take care of the inflation before it becomes a problem. That's exactly what the people of the nineteen seventies said, it never became possible to do that because as soon as they started to lower the, the the inflation rate, unemployment would move up, and they would forget about their desire to do something about the inflation. That's how we got the big inflation, and it leads me to say that a country that won't experience a small recession will end up having a big
0: one. Yeah, no, that's that's the obvious risk. But are you suggesting then that the let me put the question in a deeper, uh, a longer historical perspective. If I look at uh, real GDP over the last century, the uh, early part of that of those data are very much more volatile than the last part of the data. That is, the first 50 years of the last 100 are much – the business cycle is much uh, – the swings are bigger, whereas over the last 50 years, it's a much smoother path. There are recessions now and then. They tend to be dramatically smaller than they have been in the past, in the previous decades. And that started before Volcker. Really, to my crude, crude look at the data, does suggest it goes back to the 1950s, and that before that, the economy was much more volatile. Do you think that's random, or do you attribute that to the Fed's behavior and improving of of its policies?
1: Well, there are several parts to that. First, (coughs) up until 1930, approximately, we were on the gold standard. We didn't always follow the rules exactly, but we're on the gold standard. And the gold standard, as many economists—Fisher, Keynes, Alfred Marshall—pointed out, always told you you had to you had to conduct a pro-cyclical policy.
0: When explain. Gold, explain what that means.
1: Yes. When the gold flowed in, the economy had to expand. When the gold flowed out economy had to contract, so it put bigger cycles into employment and output, and as lo- the reason we don't have the gold standard is because people recognized or thought they recognized that they could do better at managing unemployment as the economy that we, that where the gold standard was the, the, the standard, that economy was mainly agricultural. Even in the 1920s, the main exports of the United States were agricultural commodities. So we were a heavily agricultural nation. We're not anymore. We're much more dependent upon employment in services and manufacturing. So the public and the politicians responding have moved to a system in which they're much more anxious to smooth unemployment. And that's what we've been doing mainly since the 1950s. Now, the 1950s, the Martin era, Martin Martin was the head of the Fed for 20 years, 19 years. He has two periods. He has the very good period in the 1950s when we had several recessions, but generally had a stable policy. Why was that? Because he had President Eisenhower, and President Eisenhower was very much against fiscal deficits. He was a fiscal conservative of probably the, the kind that we have never seen since. He wanted a balanced budget most of the time, and most of the time, except in recession, he got it. Therefore, the Fed was not under pressure to finance debt. Later, under Kennedy, things were okay. Lyndon Johnson began the Great Society and expanded the Vietnam War the deficit increased, and Martin financed it.
0: Explain what you mean by that, because I think that's a very important point, and 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 it shows that a lot of times what we call the cause of something often is only the proximate cause. You have to look deeper and peel back the onion to see what, what's really moving things. What do you mean by the fact that the uh, when you say that the Fed financed that debt? So the, the federal government was expanding its activity in welfare programs that were the Great Society and in the war in Vietnam, Johnson had inadequate tax revenue to cover those costs. He had to borrow. He wouldn't
1: raise tax rates.
0: He didn't want to raise tax rates, so he borrowed the money to f- pay for that. What's the role of the Fed in that story?
1: Well, Johnson, President Johnson was a sh- strict believer that high interest rates were a bad thing, that increases in interest rates were bad. And he pressured Martin, and Martin operated under a view It was very popular in the 1950s and even in the 1960s, which was we should coordinate policy. What did that mean? It meant that if the government ran a deficit, the Fed would not raise interest rates to finance it. The deficit was being run to expand the economy, and the Fed was not going to cut that off by raising interest rates. And they, although Martin didn't fully believe in that view, He responded to the pressures, so that uh, they're just the best example is uh, he had a very expansive policy to financing the deficit in 1965. He begged Johnson to increase tax rates. Johnson couldn't get the tax rate through without an agreement with the Congress that he would cut spending on the Great Society programs. He didn't want to do that. So he never pushed the tax increase until finally nineteen sixty eight he did push the tax increase. And he got a surtax, a temporary increase in the interest rates that people have to raise revenue. The Keynesians the in tax rates. Tax rates. The Keynesians in policy immediately screamed, although they had been yelling and screaming that they wanted an increase in tax rates, as soon as it was passed. They started to scream overkill.
0: It's going to hurt the economy. It's going to shut you. You're going to bring on a recession. hurt the economy.
1: We're going to have a recession. And Martin gave in. He lowered interest rates to help finance that deficit. So, the deficit was, was being created by the cut in, by the increase in tax rate, so, by the increase in spending.
0: So let, let me make sure I understand this. The, the, normally, especially in the 60s when world capital markets were not as integrated as they are now, the idea would be that if the U.S. government ran a deficit and had to borrow a significant amount of money from fellow citizens, that that would force interest rates up to ensure that the bonds could be sold Correct. to generate the revenue. So normally that would spill over into other sectors, discouraging investment and in other activity. And the worry, because of that worry, you're saying that the Fed – uh, ex- essentially, expanded money supp- the money supply sufficiently to lower to hold the interest, interest rates, down. rates down. That the that the that the federal government would have to pay on its borrowing to finance it. That's what you're saying, right? That's
1: exactly right. And 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 Martin did that. So the early Martin period from 1951 when he took over to 1964 is a period of moderate inflation or even low inflation. In fact, in 1960. 162, we actually got to something very close to zero inflation rates. Then came the Great Society and the increased expenditure for Vietnam, and he financed that, the Fed financed that. So although he was a strongly committed anti-inflationist, he left office with the inflation rate running at 6% year over year. Although he was very committed to the idea of the fixed exchange rate through the international Bretton Woods system, Bretton Woods system was on; it was tottering on its last legs by the time he left office, and a few months later, it ended.
0: My earlier remark, though, about proximate and deeper causes is that uh, what you're really saying is that, in some sense, and I'm going to underline, in some sense, the deficit spending of the Johnson administration and the Congress led to inflation through the indirect mechanism of the pressure it then put on the Fed to accommodate it. Right,
1: because they accepted that there would be They accepted two things. They accepted the unemployment rate should not, that the natural or or equilibrium unemployment rate that they should aim for was 4%. It should not go above 4%. And second, they, they believed that they should coordinate the policy. That is, if there was a bigger deficit and interest rates were pushed up by the deficit, they should keep them down. Those two things helped them to get to the inflation that we then began to have. And once we had it, it was it meant that we had to suffer some pain to get rid of the inflation. We had to accept temporarily some unemployment. President Nixon was not willing to do that. It, President Ford was much better. President Carter was not very good until very the, the very end of his administration. When... The public claimed that, um, that inflation was the number one economic problem. At that point, Carter appointed Volcker. And Volcker came to Carter's office to be interviewed and said to him, Mr. President, I'm going to be much harder on inflation than the previous chairman. President Carter said, that's what I want.
0: Because at that point... It was what was inflation running at that point?
1: At that point, it was politically desirable right. to lower the inflation rate. And the Carter people, uh, the Carter administration, their solution to all of these problems was we can't cause a recession. We don't want slowdown in the economy. So the way we're going to control inflation was through the mistaken idea that they were going to have guideposts and guidelines and Mm. tell labor and industry how to price. Well,
0: that was a mistake. Disaster. So here's the way I understand your story, which uh, I have to say I find um, somewhat disillusioning and discomforting. Um, It's not so much the wisdom of the particular chair of the Fed, and it's not so much the uh, understanding of monetary policy and the advances in economic theory that determine the stability of the price level in our economy. Rather, it's the level of understanding of our presidents, Congress, and the general public that works its way through the political process and pressures these uh, various chairs to behave. Even someone like Martin, who, as you point out, between 51 and, say, 62 or 64, looks like a a wonderful um, hawk on inflation, suddenly changes because of the political winds that are blowing.
1: Yes, he doesn't change his rhetoric, no. but he changes his, his outcome. I would add to that, I would change that in one way. We do learn, and research and, and economics does matter. I mean, one of the ways in which it matters is you see that around the world, there are many countries now that have inflation targets. The main thing that the inflation target does is, of course, it puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that we want to control inflation, but it forces... Because we understand, from mainly from the work of Milton Friedman, that it takes a couple of years before today's policy gets translated into inflation. So by concentrating on inflation and setting an inflation target, they force themselves to think about the longer-term consequences of their policy. We are much less willing to do that, mainly for political reasons. So, but,
0: so let's step back a little bit and talk about... So inf-
1: economics has had an, an important role in bringing that about, in developing something like what is known as the Taylor Rule, which says concentrate on both the loss of output and the range, the, the rate of inflation. Work on both of those. Work on both of them all the time, don't keep shifting from one to the other. Now that's pretty well accepted in many countries, and it's useful. Even the Fed looks at it, but it doesn't do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, when you the Taylor Rule is named after John Taylor, who's it at, at yes. Stanford? Uh, the you say pay attention to two things: output and prices. But Fed's only got one instrument, really, one lever either you can think of it as this interest rate or you can think of it as the money supply, you really can't satisfy at all times both of those goals at once. No, but it
1: can pay attention to both of those goals and moderate its policy so that it doesn't suddenly expand in too much in order to hold down the possibility of a recession and then think that it's going to reverse that and concentrate on holding down inflation. What the Taylor Rule and much academic research says is concentrate on both of them. Think about the medium term, aim for both of them, and that will get you the kind of stable path that we had in the Volcker Greenspan years.
0: Well, let's step back a little bit and talk about inflation generally. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about its impact on um, on our economic activity and our, and our standard of living, our lives. A lot of people, I think, are... Don't fully um, understand the Fed and see it as a dangerous entity that's constantly uh, degrading our um, the value of the dollar through through inflation. There's some truth to that, of course. Yes. But in general, a say steady rate of inflation. If inflation were three percent every year, and everyone knew it, and everyone expected it, and those expectations were realized, the Fed would be doing a, a good job because. Economic actors would respond to that expectation. Prices and, on average and wages would rise by – the prices would rise about – would be rising to 3 percent, and wages would adjust accordingly to that expectation. And I would think that the Fed would be relatively harmless. I would think the real risk of the Fed's destructive power is the uncertainty, the swings in inflation, the unpredictability of it. Uh, is that the right way to look at That's it? That's
1: the right way to look at it. That is, that's why we need a medium-term strategy, and we need to adhere to the medium-term strategy. I mean, think about our current circumstances. Why did we get the big expansion in the so-called bubble in housing? Well, the Fed held the interest rate too low too long. That isn't the only reason that we got the housing problem, but it certainly contributed to it, because it made it very profitable to borrow, and therefore we got some of that expansion uh, now we're again holding the interest rate way below where it should be in order to balance the risks of inflation and unemployment
0: so even though again my view of it is that the fed's policy over the last 50 years has been relatively benign or productive or successful because interest rate because inflation has generally, with the exception of the late 70s, has generally been kept within a fairly narrow band, certainly compared to world history or other time periods in, in, around the world or in America. And and yet, as you point out, it's very difficult for the Fed to keep the course because of the political pressures. It's very difficult for them to keep that intermediate focus. We can, we can proselytize and harangue and, and beg and and uh, jawbone that they do so, but it's unlikely that they will. So I want to raise the possibility that that we would be better off with some alternative to the Fed. Is that true? Uh, what well, alternatives are there, and what are their uh, potential benefits and costs?
1: Let me, let me just adjust one of the things you said. You said the policy over the last 50 years has been relatively benign. Well, c- certainly not through the great inflation. I mean, one of the high costs which we paid in the great inflation wars, people concentrate on what the price level is going to be, managing their inventories, not thinking about what kind of productive investments they can make because they don't know what the prices are going to be in the two years that it takes to build that factory. So those are real costs. But another real cost, which everyone should recognize, is we wiped out the savings and loan industry. We regulated their interest rates. We caused them to have massive losses. Who paid for those losses? The public, the taxpayers. How much do they pay? Oh, two hundred billion dollars. By the time it was all over, you know, those are big costs, and that was an entirely avoidable circumstance.
0: Well, avoidable in, on paper. The question is: Is it realistic to expect that the Fed will successfully uh, steer the uh, its policies through without and avoid those disasters?
1: Well, in the case of the savings and loan industry. Housing is a sacred cow. Housing is, gets built in every, in every congressional district. There's nothing that the, the Congress concerns itself more with in the economy than what's happening to the housing industry. So that made it very difficult to allow the interest rates on, at savings and loan associations to rise. So they just cheated the public by keeping the interest rates too low. Eventually, markets, you know, one of the laws of regulation is that lawyers make the regulations and markets figure out how to circumvent them when it's in their interest. So what did the market do? It created the Money Market Mutual Fund. People could get honest payment of interest rate, which reflected the inflation. That drained the money out of the savings and loans associations, and eventually Congress agreed that there wasn't much that they were doing that was helpful and a great deal that was doing that was harmful. So they finally repealed the legislation which required them to hold the interest rate low on the savings and loan associations. That, but by that time, the industry was on its way. The death knell had sounded for that industry.
0: So that, I come back to my question. Is there an alternative uh, set of institutions to the Fed that might do a better job? Uh, For creating long-run stability of the the monetary, uh, for the price uh, level.
1: If you want to create long-run stability, you have to have a policy which aims at a long-term or medium-term result. So you want to get away from the day-to-day emphasis. We haven't convinced enough of the economics profession, let alone the general public, that that's something that we want to do. That's the work that I believe we have to do. We have to convince people, just as they have in Britain and Sweden and Australia and many other countries, we have to convince them to have something like an inflation target that is something that will drive us toward a medium-term strategy. That's not hard to do in principle, but in practice, it takes a great deal of education to get the public aware that that's a better way, that they will be better off if we don't try to respond to every little shock in the economy at the expense of some future problem which will make things worse.
0: Well, uh, we'd also like our politicians to behave that way, and and I don't think that's a... If we convince the public,
1: we'll convince the politicians.
0: But short of that, what about returning to a different role of the Fed in institutional terms? Is there any... A lot of people suggest we should go back to a gold standard or some alternative to the government's control of the money supply. Is there any possibility of that? Not practically, but is there anything to be said for that in its virtues?
1: Yes, there's a virtue in the gold standard. I mean, the gold standard says you can only have a moderate amount of price instability. I mean, prices can only rise so much, you begin to lose gold, you have to contract. That's A useful thing. The reason we don't have the gold standard is not because we don't know about the gold standard, it's because we do. What we know about the gold standard is that we have to accept bigger fluctuations in employment and output than we're willing to tolerate politically. And so that's why no country has the gold standard. Second, I would say it would not do us a great deal of good to go on the gold standard alone, it would have to be international. That is, other countries have to do it. There is zero chance of that happening.
0: I'm curious, though, you said we would get more price stability under a gold standard, but we'd get larger fluctuations in employment. Right. In theory, would we grow faster under a gold standard for the following reason? If there was that price stability, would not decision-makers in the private sector, making those investment decisions for the longer run, be able to focus on the real variables, not be as focused on the price uncertainty that we talked about earlier. And in theory, wouldn't it be a better environment for economic growth?
1: Yes, but the other side is that output would be more variable. And therefore, the uncertainties which come because of the variability of output would be larger. And that's what we have to offset against the advantage that we have from the long-term certainty about the fact that Prices in 1939 were not very different from price levels as near as we can measure them in 1839.
0: So, so in 1913, when the Fed uh, was was created, was that the main argument that was put forward that it they would did, be more moderate, that that employment no, swings cre- would be more moderate?
1: The creation the creation of Fed <coughs> had very little to do with the smoothing of output or of prices. I mean, the gold standard at that time was just something that everyone accepted. That was like Newton's law of gravity. That was the way to That's run away. That's the way economy. it was, yeah. That's the way it had to be. So the discussion about the Fed in 1913 was very little about the economics of what the Fed would do. The argument was all about who would control the Fed. And the great compromise that President Wilson initiated Congress, some of the members of the Congress took credit for, was to set up this dual structure where we would have a political board in Wash, a politically appointed board in Washington that would supervise a system of, made up of regional banks uh, run like businesses. That system immediately set off an argument internally about who was going to run that system. And for a while, the banks pretty much controlled the system until the Great Depression, and then Congress legislated reforms, so-called, which transferred much of the authority to Washington.
0: Well, one more question about the gold standard. <clears throat> uh, a lot of people, again, I think, who are worried about the Fed and the and and the dollar, somehow think that under a gold standard, the paper money that we use has a real value because it's, quote, backed by gold, and that the today's world is sort of like a house of cards. Since there's nothing backing it, it could all just collapse at any moment. Is there any truth to that? Yes,
1: there is. I mean, when it was backed by gold, then, depending upon the mining of gold and the amount of gold there was, the price level would stay stable, and it did, pretty much. Now, it didn't stay stable from year to year, or sometimes even from decade to decade, but it stayed stable over the long term. So, if you were trying to plan what you were going to do with your uh, your assets to provide for your retirement, it was great because you knew pretty well, pretty well, as well as you can know anything. You knew that if you bought a government bond, gold back bond, or even a private gold backed bond you knew that it would be worth if it said it paid 3% interest it would pay 3% real interest over the long term so that was a, that's an advantage we've lost that advantage we don't have we can't provide the same long term certainty that the gold standard provided provided but we've gained greater control over the medium term and over the short term which is something politically that we want we 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 seem to want, and if you listen to the caterwauling that goes on now about the need for government policy to be more stimulative, you certainly can see that people are not willing to bear the uncertainties and fluctuations that occurred under the gold standard. Now, it's also true that under the gold standard, when we had the gold standard, we were an agricultural nation, so people could live on their farms, they could eat, they were more or less protected their incomes might go down, but they were able to, they had their housing, they had food, they were more or less uh, secure. We don't have that system anymore. We don't have that country anymore. We have people who live, many of them, who live from day to day, and from paycheck to paycheck. And so uh, any small loss of income seems to them to be a disaster, and they scream politically, you got to do something about it. And we're certainly observing that at the moment.
0: Isn't the other thing you hear about uh, the risk of a gold standard, going back to it, would be deflation. That if the supply of gold was relatively stable and the economy was becoming more and more productive, the average level of prices would be falling. Would that be anything to worry about?
1: Well, uh, yes. And Irving Fisher, uh, who was one of the great American economists, he developed a system in which he said, "You can't just keep the price of gold fixed interminably. you want to tie the price of gold to a basket of commodities so that if the price of gold were to fall and force deflation, that wouldn't happen if it's tied to the basket of commodities.
0: Why would that be worrisome? Why would deflation be anything different than a little a mild deflation be anything different than a mild inflation?
1: Well, I'm on the side that a mild deflation is not more serious, and uh, you know in writing the history of the Federal Reserve. I find seven deflations, seven periods in which prices fell, at least a little bit, and sometimes a lot, as in 1921. You can't, and there's one exception to that rule, which I'll come back to, you can't see a difference in the recovery of the economy during the period of mild deflation than you would find in a period without mild deflation. It's, you know, it's no more painful maybe be less painful than a mild inflation, but certainly no more painful than a mild deflation. Mild
0: so what's inflation. the exception?
1: <laughs> the exception is the Great Depression. Yes. Why was it an exception? It was an exception because as the deflation proceeded, the money supply cut faster than the prices fell. So the reasonable expectation was they were going to fall further, that the deflation was not going to come to an end But it was going to continue. And at the same time, the banking system, banks were failing, so people were losing their deposits. There was no deposit insurance to protect them. So the expectation was that the deflation would continue and continue. And it did until we devalued the dollar and gold flowed into the United States because we overvalued the price of gold. And Therefore, we accumulated enormous amounts of gold. By the end of World War II, we had about 70% of the world's gold stock. And during the 1930s, that expanded the money supply and the economy. By 1936, we had ended the deflation, and the economy had gotten back almost to the 1929 level. Then the Fed made another big mistake and ended that
0: recovery and threw us into another recession, of severe right. recession of 1938. A
1: very severe recession in 1937-38, mainly caused by what? They got concerned about inflation. They saw the huge accumulation of reserves in the banking system because the gold was coming in so fast, and they sent, then decided to sterilize, that is, to stop buying gold.
0: And so you agree with, with Milton's story that their ineptitude was a major... uh
1: yes. He emphasizes the increases in the reserve requirements much more than he does the the sterilization of gold. I emphasize much more the sterilization of gold and uh, much less the increase in the reserve requirements.
0: So to just make a modern uh, quick uh, aside here, we've been talking about fiscal and monetary policy uh, off and on. Uh, As we're having this conversation, I think the first... Uh, stimulus checks have just been going, have just gone out from Washington that that are going to save us from a recession. The idea, oh. well, yep, hold your laughter. Uh, the the idea being that somehow, if um, if consumers have more money in their pocket, they'll spend it. That will stimulate the economy. The this is a very Keynesian idea that I think is again widely held by the average American and by uh, most journalists that the underlying theory behind the stimulus rebate is, is, is basically good, uh, what do you think is going to happen?
1: Well, the first paper I heard, I think, as a graduate student more than 50 years ago, was Milton Friedman coming around and talking about permanent income theory. The essential point of the permanent income theory is that if you make a temporary and you announce it's going to be a temporary change in tax rates or spending, people will save it. You pay down debt, or save it. If you want to get a permanent stimulus, you better make a permanent change.
0: But even a permanent, if the government announced that it was going to uh, cut taxes um, for all Americans by, say, 20%, or my favorite example, just not collect any taxes next year, or maybe ever. Uh, That wouldn't stimulate the economy either uh, because I think people correctly anticipate that um, that money's got to come from somewhere. Somewhere. So without spending cuts, um, what is the meaning of a a tax cut?
1: Well, we certainly have... We've had this experiment, the one that we're going to run now. We've had this experiment with the 1968 tax surcharge that was a temporary tax surcharge. We had several... Efforts in the 1970s to have temporary stimulus. President Carter had a $50 rebate that he was going to send to everybody. He uh, the the reaction in the Congress and in the public was very much against it, and he evidently canceled. And he eventually canceled it. President Bush had a temporary payment to people when he first took office, but he coupled it with a permanent tax cut. And the permanent tax cut had more effect, according to the best estimates, than the temporary tax cut. So we've run that experiment, and what we find is we get very most people who get it will save it or pay down debt. Some people who are really tightly constrained may spend it, but spending is not going to do it. I mean, we're in a, a country which imports. Uh, at least twelve percent of its goods. So if they go out and buy things at Walmart, then the stimulus is going to go to China, because they're the ones who are going to get the increased output to supply the goods to
0: Walmart. But That's even but just e- foolishness. But isn't it also true that that we would expect on the real side of the economy, on the supply side, why would let me let me ask a question a little more thoughtfully. Let me let me rephrase it. What is the difference between the following scenarios? The government prints money. Uh, They take $100 bills and they give them out and they put them in everybody's mailbox. So you wake up in the morning and you say, congratulations, we have put a $100 bill in your mailbox. Please go out and be a patriot and spend it. Second possibility, the government announces that they're cutting taxes. It's not really a tax cut, it's called a rebate. It really seems to me. Absolutely no different than the, than, the, than the printing of the money uh, in the absence of other corresponding spending cuts. And why would we not expect such tax, so-called tax cuts, which don't change real incentives? Wouldn't they have virtually the same impact on, on the real side? No,
1: because the first case, uh, I now, if I was in equilibrium before, I had the money balances that I wanted. I now have more money balance than I had before, so I'm going to spend it on either output or assets. Case of the tax cut, the temporary tax. All I'm doing is transferring debt to the public sector from the private sector.
0: But in both cases, wouldn't there be zero true stimulative effect of an increase in output? No. If, if it were, let me say it differently. If it were understood and expected, obviously, if if it was a secret, if 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 Alan Meltzer or Russ Roberts woke up one morning and and, and found a hundred dollar bill. You'd try to spend it, as you say, and you'd find that would have no effect, one of us. But if we were all given that, that might delude businesses for a while into thinking there'd been an increase in demand and they might go out and hire more people. But if everyone knows it's going to be a temporary change and it's not real, it's just paper, won't they just raise their prices?
1: Not immediately.
0: Right, not immediately.
1: Eventually, of course, prices will rise, but the initial effect will be positive. That is, we'll have a stimulative effect because I now have more cash balance than I really want. Now, I may not buy goods and services. And I may not run down to the grocery store Correct. and spend it, but I may buy an asset.
0: Right, but in the and ca- if I
1: buy an asset, of course, I change the relative prices in the market, and that has an important effect.
0: But would it be any different for the $100 bill in envelope that's, co- that's printed up by the Federal Reserve and the $100 bill in the envelope that the Treasury Department sends me as my tax rebate? That's my question. Yes. Why?
1: Because in one case, we have a debt of the government that uh, is now larger and a debt of the private sector, which is now smaller.
0: And therefore?
1: And therefore, the effect will be smaller. That is, we haven't changed anything of significance as far as the public is concerned. They just, have, they just have changed from their indebtedness. They use the money to pay off their debt. The government has now accumulated more debt.
0: Right. And, and, is, and if that I... doesn't
1: happen in the case of the monetary increase. The monetary increase is just manna from heaven.
0: I just it seems to me that, that oh I understand. You know, they're both mana from heaven to the in in this in some dimension for, for in both cases, but, but you're okay. right, it's more than manna from heaven in the second case, because there's a promise that the government going to to have, is gonna to have to pay yes. uh than if it's literally printed up. Um but in neither case it seems to me it would be particularly stimulative of real real activity.
1: But the monetary increase will have a temporary stimulative effect. That the fiscal stimulus Will not have.
0: Well, I guess what I'm trying to get at, and because I, of the permanent income theory, that is, nothing has
1: changed as far as your expected wealth is concerned.
0: What I'm trying to get at is an idea that that I that I heard from Milton Friedman that that I'd like to get your reaction to, which is uh, a tax cut that is not accompanied by a spending cut, or worse, what we've been doing in the last oh seven or so years of the United States, a tax cut in rates that's accompanied by enormous real spending increases is really a tax increase, not a tax cut. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, if we don't cut spending, I mean, we may get some temporary stimulus from the tax cut, but if we don't cut spending, then all we've done is create more debt that the public ultimately has to service.
0: It's a future tax increase.
1: Yes. Now, they may not recognize it right away, and so on. I mean, sure. the, the, the the I think one of the most misleading things that I've heard about economics in recent years is a statement which Vice President Cheney is supposed to have made to Paul O'Neill when he was Secretary of the Treasury. He said, "Reagan, President Reagan showed that deficits don't matter." He should have added, "As long as foreigners buy the debt."
0: Correct, but even at the current. I- well,
1: but even then, we owe that money, and that's a charge against the public, and some of that charge is now coming home in the form of a depreciation of the dollar.
0: But the part I wanted to the, – again, the sort of standard view you hear about the deficit is that the reason we don't want to run deficits is because it will raise interest rates and slow down the economy. It has not done that. Because the, last the Chinese years.
1: and others right. have been buying the debt,
0: holding the world interest rate, right? Because relatively they, g- right, because what they, it is?
1: Yes, the Chinese and many others are still mercantilists,
0: and they're well, they're and they're financing our um, our spending, which is which is could be fine as long as it's uh, as long as it's not profligate and not beyond our means,
1: and as long as they are willing. To take the losses as they are.
0: I mean, inflation is coming along, yeah. With
1: the, with the inflation that's coming along and the reduction in the value of the debt that they hold. Now, they're not stupid, so they understand that this is part of the price that they pay for making their economy grow as fast as it is, avoiding the social consequences of large unemployment, building their economy, and so on, maintaining these supernormal growth rates. And they do that by subsidizing us through buying our debt. We produce pieces of paper, which we sell to them, and they produce real goods and services, which they sell to us.
0: Which sounds like a pretty good deal. For us, yeah.
1: as long as it goes on. Right. No, and but it... As my friend and former colleague at AEI, Herb Stein, would say, you know, unsustainable trends have to come to an end.
0: Well, let's talk about that. I, I actually wanted to move on to a different topic, but let, let's talk about that. Why is it unsustainable? Why is it not possible? Again, there are two issues here. One issue is the U.S. government is living beyond its means. It spends more than this it collects. economy. Well, let's start with the U.S. government, though. Yes. The U.S. government spends more than it takes in in taxes. Yes. And it finances the difference by, lend, by borrowing money from mostly – not mostly, but from foreigners and American citizens. Right. Um. Again, to quote Milton, Milton would argue that the key issue isn't how the spending is financed, but whether it's a good idea or not. Whether you pay for it with taxes today or taxes tomorrow is not so important. It's whether it's wise to spend to extract that amount of resources from the private sector versus letting people uh, keep it. Yes,
1: if the if the government was spending for highly productive uses, then you would say that's a good thing.
0: That's a good thing. So it's a bit of a red herring then. But let's suppose that that the deficit as a percentage of of uh, total spending state we're talking again about the budget deficit, not the trade deficit, the budget deficit. The budget deficit stays at its current level in terms of a percentage. It's a very large number, but it's not so large because the economy is very large. So as a percentage, there's no risk at its current level. Foreigners are not worried that U.S. government will not honor its promises in the literal sense. They do have a worry that they will be paid back in dollars that are not as valuable. But as long as there's confidence that the that the deficit is fundable in the sense that that we'll be able to honor our promises and pay back the face value of the debt, can we not run that that uh, system for a very 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 long time?
1: But look what's happening. We have to roll over that debt all the time. That is, the debt right. is not permanent or perpetual. Right. In in the, in the sense that the bonds have a terminal date and the holders can decide not to renew their loan to us
0: that's correct right. well why so wouldn't in order I? to in
1: order to get them to do that we have to make it more attractive to them
0: or dollar, as attractive pardon as, me or as attractive, as attractive.
1: Yeah. and the way in which we're doing that is by depreciating the dollar right. making assets and output in the United States cheaper
0: well, That's not a plan, is it?
1: It's a consequence.
0: Yeah. So it's not like, it's not a strategy.
1: No, but it does remember that when the dollar declines, our wealth declines.
0: In what sense?
1: In the sense that uh, if you were to take a trip to uh, Europe uh, five years ago, you would have found a very different cost of travel than you do now because it costs you much more to travel. Sure. So if you want to buy European goods and services, you're going to find that they're more expensive.
0: Well, that's holding those prices constant. You know, it's, it, I find it hard to talk about the implications of a falling dollar with holding everything constant because I assume there, there are lots of things going on that are changing at the same time, right? Right,
1: but the initial effect has got to be that we are poorer... Because we have to pay more for the things, for the travel that we did.
0: Okay. So, but I want to go back to the sustainability issue. Is it, are you suggesting that the cost of sustaining federal budget deficits is that we are going to lose some purchasing power outside the United States via the falling dollar? Again, holding everything else constant. Is that the right argument? That's
1: right. And, and, well, I mean, there's going to be two effects. The spending is going to be for almost always nowadays for less productive uses than would be would be true if we didn't have that deficit and had it, and we were investing in the private sector. So we lose on the productivity side, and uh, nothing would make it is clearer than that than the the attempt to spend money to bail out people who made mistakes in buying houses. Yeah, and. No productivity
0: gain from that at all. Yeah, and and before we we're, we're running low on time, and I want to I want to cut short. Maybe we'll come back and talk about the sustainability issue, and I want to come back another time and talk about the trade deficit, which is related and people's concerns. But I don't want to end this conversation without talking about coming back to the Fed and its recent role in the Bear Stearns, JP Morgan issue. Yes. So I'd like to close with that. I have lots of other things. Maybe we can talk another time because you've done some very interesting work on the IMF and the World Bank that we'll put a link up to at least, but uh, we don't have time to talk about. But I, I want to hear your thoughts on the Bear Stearns issue because Bernanke's decision to intervene and uh, guarantee a, a significant portion of Bear Stearns' uh, paper and, and guarantee the their assets, which were of uncertain value, To induce J.P. Morgan to buy uh, uh, Bear Stearns at a very low price, that was later changed. Uh, That was an extremely, in my opinion, and again, you're the the authority. So, what your thoughts? That was an extreme expansion of the uh, role of the Fed in our economy, and one that is not particularly transparent and not particularly accountable. And I like your thoughts on that and what might have happened had the fed done nothing which people seem to suggest would have led to a catastrophic set of events and i'm a skeptic so what are your thoughts on that
1: well the fed's one of the fed's responsibility let me start at a different point the fed in its 98 history has never announced what its policy was going to be as far as lending to distressed in periods of distress Sometimes it bails out companies. Sometimes it, it intervenes and gets the uh, uh, principals together in a room and gets them to do something. Sometimes it lets the, thing, the company fail. You can't tell from one instance to the other what they're going to do. That creates a great deal of uncertainty that was absolutely clear in the case of Bear Stearns. The What the Fed did in Bear Stearns was to protect the payment and settlement system. That's a responsibility of the Fed. So it couldn't allow this failure to spread. Now, they were convinced, probably correctly, that if they let Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns, if they let Bear Stearns fail and did nothing, nothing at all, that there would be then a run on all the other or many of the other investment banks. So they thought correctly, I think, that they had to do something. Now, what should they do? Well, they, one choice was to follow basically the, the policy that Congress had laid out after the failure of all the savings and loan associations and banks in the 1990s. It passed a law called Fidicia, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act. And it said... Let them make them fail. By fail we mean the equity is wiped out, the stockholders take the loss, and the management loses its jobs. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it did.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's the good news. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, pardon me? <laughs> that was the good news. Bear that Stearns, was the good news. They didn't now, literally bail them out. They, yeah, they just softened the blow a little bit. They,
1: just, they actually wiped them out. Yeah. Right? I mean, the fact that they got, in the end, $10 a share... When the shares have been selling for well over hundred dollars at an earlier period, you know, if you're if you're a stockholder in the company that does that, you don't feel that you've been bailed out. I understand. All right. Now, the mistake they made, and maybe it was unavoidable, but it was a mistake. They said we have to have this done by seven forty-five on Sunday evening. Why? Because the Japanese market is gonna open at eight o'clock and there's gonna be a run on all on Bear Stearns and all the others. So we have to have it done. But to tell a shrewd negotiator like the chairman of Morgan J P. Morgan Chase that you have to have a deal by seven
0: forty five. Is
1: as much <laughs> as saying to him, you dictate the terms.
0: But my understanding was that they wanted – I don't know if this is true, but that they wanted – the initial price was $2 a share, and that that was – they wanted to avoid the political implications of looking like they'd saved a lot of money. Yeah. And what what I didn't understand, and maybe you have some insight into this, why was J.P. Morgan the only company bidding for this bargain?
1: Because of the 20 leading banks in the United States, only three – J.P. Morgan – Chase had pretty much stayed out of the worst part of the mortgage debacle. So it was the one that had the capital to get in. There weren't many others that had enough capital to be able to buy Bear Stearns.
0: And keep those... You now, when you talked about the payment settlement system, uh, this is an arcane part of the financial world. Bear Stearns is involved day to day in... I don't really understand it myself. If
1: borrowing short-term... To finance its portfolio.
0: And the portfolio of other companies as well, right? Not just their own. Isn't that part of the issue?
1: Well, it lends to other companies. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, in that sense, it helps other companies. But the main thing that it was doing was borrowing daily in the market in large amounts to finance a portfolio of assets that weren't very good. I mean, the fundamental problem that affects the financial markets at the moment is. No one is exactly certain, or can be, as to how far the housing price is going to fall. Generally speaking, the media play up the decline in housing prices as something short of disaster.
0: Which is absurd, given how high they were.
1: Right, and the fact that in order to get to a correct new equilibrium, they have to fall. So the faster they get there, the better it's going to be, and the quicker the problem will be over. Why will it end then? Because once we know where the housing prices are going to settle, we'll know what some of the mortgages are worth. At the moment, nobody is very certain about what those mortgages are worth. So banks will lend to other banks through the federal funds market and commercial paper market. They'll lend overnight, maybe for three days, but they don't want to take loans even for 30 days because they don't know what's in the portfolio of mortgages that the other people are holding. And that's where, so Bear Stearns was forced to finance itself over a very short term, to finance a portfolio of ins- uncertain value over a very short term. And the problem was that, the, as the Fed saw it, was that they weren't going to be able to do that
0: under the people circumstances People of, would not be willing to lend them the money to cover their co- right. those, those obligations. Right, so they
1: would default.
0: And if as,
1: and go bankrupt, and as they defaulted and go, went bankrupt, that would spread the the, day, the 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 run on other investment banks. So they had to do something. Now, what could they have done instead of what they did for Bear Stearns? <coughs> they could have followed the rule that Walter Badgett, an economist of the 19th century and a very astute observer of markets and financial transactions. <coughs> What bad and the editor of the magazine, The Economist, Badgett said lend freely at a penalty rate. So they could have said, Okay, best turns is gone. We will lend on good collateral, or at least nearly good collateral, to anybody who has a problem.
0: To forestall the next to forestall domino the from the spreading yeah. of the
1: crisis. And uh in Badgett's book, where he lays out this principle, he says, "You know, and in a few hours, the market was quiet."
0: Yeah, Badgett is spelled B-A-G-E-H-O-T, and when I was in graduate school. I thought his name was Bagaho, but it's not. Yeah. It's Badgett. Badget. And we have some of his uh, work. I think at the Library of Economics and Liberty, we'll put some of that up as a link to it's this great podcast. Great book, yes. But so they quote made a mistake. But you you said something um, that I haven't heard anywhere else, which is a very deep insight i keep hearing over and over again that quote the, no one can evaluate the the portfolio i'm thinking what do you mean you can't evaluate you know you don't know what how much of it's horrible how much of it's good i'm thinking well look go in there and look but your point which i think is profound is that the difficulty in evaluating the evaluating the portfolio isn't merely knowing the quality of the loans it's that the the quality of the loans themselves you know the quality of the good ones versus the bad ones it's that when prices are falling, you you can't really. Ass- it's much harder to assess the risk and since you don't know right. how far they're going to fall. You
1: don't know, and and adding to the problem is they've developed these complex instruments. We have some mortgages that are being paid, some that may may be paid, some that may not be, not paid, be paid, and yeah. they're all in a pool. So if you're an outsider and you look at bank X and you say, well, he has these. Mortgage packages, but who knows what's in there?
0: And people are walking away from those mortgages right. literally because not, – not because they can't afford to pay them because it's not, it's not economically rational to keep uh, paying your mortgage for a declining asset. Relating again to your point, point. Uh, and so the comfort I'm getting from this conversation is uh, – it's a little bit bewildering why so many wise people – and, and I assume many of the people involved in this debacle are wise. Uh, I understand they're greedy, but most people are gre- would like more money than less all the time. Sure. Uh, but what you're suggesting is is that this – un, uh, what was irrational – not irrational, but the gamble people are making is that if housing prices continue to rise, it doesn't matter as much about how junky the portfolio is. Yes. When they fall, it's all that matters, and right. it's, and, and you get into a very uh, uncertain world. Right.
1: And you just raised what I think is the, a fundamental question. How was it that the MBAs, five, ten years out of school, out of the best business schools in the world, who, all, who almost all or all had taken courses in finance, how is it that they were buying and selling pieces of paper that they knew to be had to know were not worth much, How did they, why did they do that? The answer is because the incentives are very bad. They make the profit, they're under pressure from their management to make the profit and get a bonus, and they get big bonuses for doing this.
0: The question of that though then is you know why? I think less about the 10 year out MBA than I do about the CEO of Bear Stearns Well so as you point out, a few months ago, a year or so ago, was worth about a billion, and then suddenly, which is a, a large sum of money, and now found his holdings worth about a hundred million, which is still a lot of money, but it's a lot less than a billion. Yes, how indeed. did how did he why did he roll the dice that way? Why did he leave those incentives in place for those MBAs?
1: That's I think a very good question, and I don't know the I don't claim to know the answer. Uh, my guess is. That he saw what you described a moment ago—that housing prices could never fall as much as they did—and so he levered his company and took on a lot of bad assets that turned out to be bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, greed. And you know, when he was on the golf course or, in his case, at the bridge table, not worrying about this stuff very much.
0: Well, that was a mistake. Yeah, uh, it was. I wonder. You know, I just—I wonder how people much people do make mistakes. They do. Uh, I I wonder if he did ever think that he was, quote, too big to fail and and he would get some downside protection.
1: Maybe. I would say that there's a second element here, other than the bad incentives in the market, and that is the governments of the major lending countries, developed countries, got together and they agreed on what is known as the Basel Agreement. The Basel Agreement said to the banks, if you hold risky assets... You have to have more capital. So what did they do? That's a clear case of where the lawyers make a rule mm. and the market figures out how to circumvent it. What they did was they invented a bunch of instruments which weren't on their balance sheet. Yeah. So they didn't have to hold the additional reserves. That was bad regulation, and that regulation caused a great deal of this problem. Now, there's a contrast because, as you pointed out, the CEO of Bear Stearns permitted, encouraged, abetted this kind of behavior. The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase to a much less extent. So management mattered.
0: And there's some, some return to...
1: And he's got the benefit of buying a good part of the market for certain instruments at a very low price.
0: And there's a little bit of justice in that. My guest today has been Alan Meltzer of Carnegie Mellon University, the author of The History of the Federal Reserve, Volume 1, 1913 to 1951, Volume 2, coming out shortly. Alan, thanks for being a part of Econ Talk.
1: Nice to be with you.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast